We at Eternal City Church generally like to go through books of the Bible. We will go through Old Testament books. We've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've gone through certain sections of the Proverbs. Uh, We've gone through many of the New Testament books. And occasionally what we like to do is called a topical series. A topical series is one that uh, does not take uh, a book of the Bible and go by chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but rather it, it centers around a topic. However, when we do topical series, we like to still exposit scripture. So everything that we do here at Eternal City Church is centered in the scriptures because it is the word of God and only the word of God is authoritative. Not my opinion, not any other author's or theologian's opinion. Uh, Only the Word of God is authoritative. And so everything that we do will be centered and grounded in the Word of God, which is the authority. Okay, And so tonight, we are going to start a new series called Theology Untangled. This is what we requested of you. If you had any theological questions, we requested that you get them to us. And that we would sort through them, we would smash some of them together if they were closely related, and then we would do our best to give a biblical answer for the theological questions that might be tripping you up or that you can't quite figure out. We got uh, uh, more questions than we can answer because we would be preaching uh, half a year in this series, and we don't want to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a lot of the questions that were related. We're going to try to smash them together and maybe take three questions in one night. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this question. Does God have multiple wills that leave humans with no free choices? Now, that's a weird way to ask that question. However, here's the two questions that got smashed together. It was basically, if God is sovereign and controls all things and chooses what will happen and chooses whom he will save, then do humans have free will? The second question was, does God have more than one will? Does he have multiple wills? And so those two questions got smashed together, and this is the question that came out of the question smasher. It is, does God have multiple wills? that leave humans with no free choices. So here's how we're going to do that. We're going to answer that question by asking four more questions. Here's the questions we're going to ask and seek to answer. Number one, what is God's revealed will or will of command? What is God's secret will or sovereign will? What is human free will or free choice? And then fourthly, What is the relation between all three? That's what we're going to do. So first, it would be helpful to understand what is a dictionary definition of will. And here it is. First one's a bit complex. Second is easy. The faculty of consciousness and especially of deliberate action, the power of control the mind has over its own actions. Number two, power of choosing one's own actions. So that's a simple definition of will right there. It's, it's the mind making choices. It's you choosing. There it is, the will. There's our four questions that we're going to seek to answer. And by answering them, we shall answer, does God have multiple wills that leave humans with no free choices? First one we're going to hit is this number one, what is God's revealed will or will of command? Well, we can see here from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, that God does have a will that is revealed to his creatures. His revealed will goes out to all and to everyone, and as we'll see later, even those who don't have a copy of his word. 
So this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We actually did this in a previous sermon series. If you want to hear the whole series, uh, you can go back. This text was exposited. Not everyone, so this is the end. This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking here to the crowds from the mountain. Many have gathered to hear him. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So they are proclaiming, these people, that Jesus is Lord. And they're saying it out loud, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who speaks that way or even acknowledges him as Lord in their minds will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's a contrast here in verse 21 of people who only say, have a profession, Lord, Lord, but there's no action to back up the profession. And then in the second part of verse 21, we see there are those who not only have a profession, but their actions back up their profession. Their profession. This is similar to what James said when he said, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. On that day, this is judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now you can see the same thing happening in verse 22 and 23. They're saying, didn't we do these things? We've prophesied, which means speak your word. We've, we've even done demonic warfare. We are acknowledging you as Lord. And didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And he's saying, but wait, I didn't know you. I don't know you personally. I don't have a relationship with you. You think you know me and you think you've done these things in my name and connected to me. But really, we don't have a relationship. And the proof that we don't have a relationship is that second part. You workers of lawlessness. You see, when, when you don't do the will of God, which is what the word says you should be doing, you prove that though you say you have a relationship with God and you are united to him, your actions prove that you are not, that you have a false profession. Now, those of us who have a very sensitive conscience, I want to, to help you for just a moment and say, when we meet Jesus... We don't become sinless, but over time, we definitely sin less. Definitely. And if you find yourself not sinning less or sinning without any conscious, conscience pricking, no troubling waters in your mind, that is a bad sign. And so I would lovingly warn you as your pastor that you should do some heart searching with God to see if you really belong to him. And that can simply be done by yourself, in your room, in your car, in the woods, wherever. But you need to have a conversation with God and say, why is it that my works and my thoughts don't back up my profession? Matthew 28, 19 to 20, this is the Great Commission. This is for all Christians. Go therefore, this is the therefore points to all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go because I have authority and you go and you make disciples, Jesus says, of all nations. That word in Greek is ethnos, all the ethnicities. And you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And you teach them to observe all that I have commanded 
aka the will of God. God has a will and he has revealed it to us. And specifically, Jesus has given us clarity on the will of God. And so when we make disciples, we teach people to walk in the revealed will of God. Teach them to obey all I've commanded. There it is, the revealed will of God. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love the book of Colossians. We went through that book previously. And what happens in chapter 1, Paul is giving introduction to the Colossian church. This is the Apostle Paul uh, writing to the church at Colossae. And he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Colossians, when we pray for you, we always thank God for you. And when did this happen? Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. And then what happens is Paul goes off on a, uh, on a side trail there. And then he comes back to uh, his subject in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, remember up at the top there, verse 4, since we heard of your faith. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what Paul prayed. Look at this. This is for you and I. This is helpful asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. My prayer for you Colossian Christians, by extension, the prayer for Eternal City Church is this, that we, Eternal City, would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what will happen when we become not only filled with the understanding of his will and the wisdom that is connected spiritually, so as to walk, what will it produce? The knowledge of God's will by the Spirit will produce a walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. What will that produce? Fully pleasing to him. What will that look like? Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God increasing in the knowledge of his will. So you see, the knowledge of God's revealed will is not just for you to learn it, but it's always for you to take action on it. So learning it is not the end. Learning it is a means to a greater end, which is the doing of God's revealed will. Always. Did you see that consistently in the last three passages that we looked at? It's not about knowing it. It's not about saying you know it. It's rather about knowing it and then doing it. And Paul's prayer here for the Colossians, and by extension us, is that we would be filled with this spiritual wisdom that would give us insight into the revealed will of God so that we can then walk it out. And if you've been in Christianity for any time, you know that the revealed will of God is crushing if you're trying to perform it by your own strength. Just, just the forgiveness verses will crush you. Just the ones that say, don't complain. Give thanks always in all circumstances. Wait, all? All. How you doing? That's, that's, that's a few commands that we just went through. I mean, the, the commands are so multiplied in the New Testament alone that they are a burden that no Christian can carry. And we'll get to that in a minute. But God has revealed his will. Here it is again. Um, Actually, we're going we're gonna to move on. I have a lot of text, and so I, I had to cut a few short because I thought we would not finish in our allotted time. So we're going to move on to question two. Question two was this. What is God's secret will or sovereign will? And remember, what we just looked at was, what is God's revealed will or will of command? It's God's commands in his word clearly given to us. 
What is God's revealed will or will of command? It is God's commands in his word given to us. That's what it is. Now, number two, what is God's secret will or sovereign will? So see what we're doing here. We're answering the question by saying, yes, there is more than one will in uh, in God. Because now we're, we're moving from a revealed will to a different aspect of God's will, which is secret and sovereign. Secret means you can't find it out ahead of time. Sovereign means God is the one who accomplishes this purpose, whether you like it or not, whether you act on it consciously or not. So we're going to look at this. Many texts here. Lamentations 3, 37 to 38, Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote this letter. Uh, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Okay. Now, now, we don't like that because we're like, wait, I don't like God allowing evil. I don't like God allowing bad. I don't like God willing evil and bad. I don't like that. This is what the Bible teaches in many places. So it's not just the good things that God wills. It's also the bad things that God wills. Now, now some of us are already like, wait a minute, that needs some qualification. So here's a quick one. God's intentions for allowing or causing bad things to happen is always good. His intentions are always good. The ones committing the evil, whether men, women, or demons, their intentions are always not good. So, for example, we are not to be tempting anyone. That is a revealed will of God. That is a revealed command. You're not to tempt anyone to sin. When you tempt people to sin, you are playing on Satan's team. That's not a team you want to align with. However, when Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, remains on him. And the very next move is the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to what? To be tempted by the devil. And you're like, wait a minute. No, that's what it says. And so the way you reconcile that is that the Holy Spirit was not wanting Jesus to fail in the temptations in the wilderness. Rather, the Holy Spirit wanted Jesus to win victory over the temptations in the wilderness. And that victory would be a fulfillment for you and I who give in to temptations all the time. So the Holy Spirit, or God's intention in that, was that Jesus would win, and by winning, fulfill all righteousness for his people. Satan's intention was that Jesus would fall, and the universe would crumble. Do you see the the difference? A bad thing that God willed, and that Satan willed. But the intentions for the same event were way different. There's the qualification. Let's move on. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Remember the former things of old. This is uh, Isaiah the prophet speaking for God. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Here's what God does as God. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times back here, things not yet done, saying, my counsel, aka my will, 
shall stand. My counsel shall stand. My will shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purposes. I will accomplish my will. And notice he says, I'm going to accomplish my will and I'm going to call it back here before it happens out here. And I will accomplish my purposes. Not a might, not I'm going to try, not I'm going to do my best. It's happening, period. I am God. Let's move on. Job 42.2. This is after Job has uh, encountered God, the living God, and God has come to Job after his suffering and arguing and arguing with friends, and, and God says, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you. And after God questions him, this is part of Job's response. I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No, nothing you will can be thwarted. Now, now there's a theme here. Do you see it? It's that God does whatever he pleases and no one can stop him. Here's Daniel 4, 31b to 32. Now, here's the context quickly. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the, the greatest king of the time. Uh, he is so great that he has built one of the, the seven wonders of the world, his gardens here. And he's out on his rooftop. He's looking out at all he's made. And he says, look at this great Babylon that I've built for my majesty and my glory. And it was already prophesied to him that, that if you don't humble yourself, it's going to go bad for you. And so as those words were on his mouth, it went bad for him. And here's an angel, the watcher, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Now those seven periods pass. Nebuchadnezzar comes to consciousness. He wakes up. He looks up. And this is his declaration. Look at this. His dominion, that's God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. The builders to the Xers, to the millennials, to the iGen, to the Alpha. From generation to generation, God continues to rule and reign, even though the generations of men and women continue to pass into history. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay, do you see a theme here? The, the idea is that God does whatever he pleases and no power outside of himself can stop him from accomplishing his will or his purposes, even giving kingdoms and rulership and authority over nations to whoever he wants. That's the end of, of uh, 32 there. Look. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, all kingdom of men, all continents, God rules, and gives it to whom he will. This is the idea when Pilate, you know, Pilate had some, some earthly power, and Jesus, the one who has all power yet humbled himself, is standing before him. And Pilate's like, yeah, who do you think you are? 
Don't you know who I am? I have the power to put you to death or to release you. And Jesus, you could just see him look up at him and just be like, you have no idea. You would have no authority unless it was given you by my father. Jesus knew who had the authority and who had the delegated authority. It's just that Pilate didn't. And this is how it works. Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize that he only had the power and authority that he had because it was given him by the Most High. And with a snap of God's finger, it could be taken, and it was. And then it was restored. And then it was restored. All right, so there's, there's more text I wanted to get into, but again, I don't want this sermon to go four years, so let's move on to question number three. But before we move on to question number three, let's seek to answer uh, what is God's secret will or sovereign will. Here it is. It's all that comes to pass in time and space. All of it. Anything that happens, good or bad, this is God's secret or sovereign will. Here's just a few more verses. I could say them quickly. Ephesians 1.11, In him, this is Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Here's one more. It's Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot was an old an old way of making decisions. And not only would the Jews cast lots, uh, but other nations would do it too. The Romans cast lots for Jesus' clothes. It was like rolling dice. Uh, the, the sailors who had Jonah on board wanted to know why was this storm raging? Who had offended their God? And so they cast lots or they drew straws to find out who it was and the lot came to Jonah. And this proverb is saying, yeah, that lot is cast into the lap to make decisions, but it's every decision actually comes from God. Okay, and this is consistent all through the Bible. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. And so again, the answer to the question is, what is God's secret will or sovereign will? It's all that comes to pass in time and space. Okay, so now we've answered the question, haven't we? Are there more than one, is there more than one will in God? And the answer is yes. There is a revealed will which we are obligated as Christians to keep. We must obey and walk out the revealed will of God. It's the commands of the scriptures. However, there is another will at work, and this includes what we could say is the trespassing of the revealed will of God. Because God wills that bad things also happen, like Jesus be tempted by Satan, or that bad things come into your life, or that you sin against your neighbor, or that you don't obey the revealed will of God. And God sovereignly allows that to happen for his good purposes. And again, God's intention is never the evil and the harm that the will of man or the will of angels have. It's not his intent. His intent is always the good that will flow from all the bad. There's the distinction. So the answer is yes, God does have two wills. One is revealed, one is de uh, 
given to us in commands, his will of command. And his other will is sovereign, meaning he's in complete control of it, accomplishing it. And it is secret. In other words, we don't know what is going to happen. And we are also not obligated to figure it out. What we are obligated to obey is the revealed will of God. And that should be uh, helpful for you. Because you know what you have to do. You know what you should be walking in. All right, number three. What is human free will or free choice? What is human free will and free choice? Now, this is where we start to have paradoxes or contradictions enter our mind. Because we're like, wait, if God is sovereign and he does all that he pleases, and if he declares the end from the beginning, and if from ancient times he declares what is not yet and then it comes to pass, and all of his purposes will be accomplished, and he does all things according to the counsel of his will, then how in the world are my choices real and free? Isn't that the question that we ask? I mean, didn't Jesus say your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask? And then the question is, well, then why ask? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple scriptures to ground that we actually do have choices. And then we're just going to touch philosophy for just a minute. We're just going to poke at it. And then we're going to move on to the reconciliation of all three. Luke 10, 38 to 42. Now, this is the, the famous story of Mary and Martha. Do you remember? They're they're two of Jesus' friends. Uh, Lazarus is their brother. And this scene, they're at at Jesus and his disciples are at Mary and Martha's house. And Martha is busy serving everyone. I mean, she is busy, busy, busy. And Jesus is teaching. And she's like, can I get you a drink? Can I get you a snack? Uh, Here, give me your plate. I'll go wash that. And she's staring at her sister who also lives in the house. And she's just starting to get fired up because Mary is just sitting there listening to Jesus while she is working and serving and busting her tail. And it finally gets to the point where she can't take it anymore. And she says, Jesus, do something about this. A woman named Martha welcomed him, Jesus, into her house. And, he ha- and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. But wait, aren't we supposed to serve? Aren't we supposed to do good to others? Aren't we supposed to to sacrifice ourselves and put others' needs before our own? Isn't this what Martha was doing? And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Jesus, do something about this. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. And I just see the smile. Martha, Martha. You know, kind of like giving her a little hug on the side. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen, chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Notice the the choosing there. What's Mary choosing to do? Listen to Jesus. Sit at his feet. Receive his teaching. What is Martha choosing to do? Not being compelled, either of them. Not being forced, either of them. She is choosing to serve. And she is choosing to give of her house and give of her talents and abilities. Here's my reason for bringing this up. You see two women here, and you see the Lord of glory, who is the sovereign Lord of glory, all in the same place at the same time. And all of them are making free choices. No one's being compelled here. Jesus is teaching, 
Mary is listening to the teaching. No one's forcing her to do otherwise, and Jesus isn't even going to force her to help Martha. He's like, no, she's, she's chosen the better because I'm only going to be here for so long. And so here we see that in this little, little text of Scripture here, that there is free will, if you will, being exercised all over the place. Look, Mary has chosen the good portion. So what Jesus says here is there is a hierarchy of good here, and Mary has actually chosen better than you, and it is to sit with me and to listen to me. That is better in this instance than you running around Martha and serving everyone frantic and anxious. And we could preach a bunch of sermons on that, couldn't we? But that's not what we're doing. So let's go to John 5, 39 to 40. This is Jesus with a hostile crowd, and they are antagonistic towards him. And he gives this remarkable statement to them. He says, you search the scriptures, you Bible studiers, you, because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Me. And here I am. Look at verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Okay, did you see the willing there? Did you see the choice? Jesus says, you know the Bible well, but you don't know it well enough to know that the whole of the Old Testament is about me and here I am. And even though you love the Bible and you know it, the point of the Old Testament is standing in front of you and you by your own free will, your own choosing, you're refusing to come to me. You see that? Yet you refuse, you're choosing this, you Jesus rejectors, even though you love the Bible. You refuse to come to me, and if you would come to me, you would have life. Life abundantly, life to the full, eternal life. There is some clear choosing to reject Jesus there. Matthew 23, 37 This is Jesus famously weeping, crying over Jerusalem, crying over his coming to them as their Messiah, and they rejecting him. This is what John pointed to in John chapter 1. It says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so, because the Messiah, who was promised all through the Old Testament, had come to the chosen people of God, the Jews, the Jews rejected him. Jesus is grieving over their choice to reject him. Look at this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see, they're choosing, they're willing to reject their Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I've longed to gather you. I would gather you, but you refuse to come to me. Your free will is stiff arming me. That's what Jesus is saying. Some clear choosing there. Now, this text I brought in because you can see that our choosing matters at the day of judgment. Our doing 
matters. Our choosing matters. It's not arbitrary, and you are responsible for your choices. Look at this. Revelation 20, 11 to 12. This is John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, also wrote Revelation. And he's seeing this vision, and he says, I saw a great white throne. This is the great throne of judgment. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And you see here, this is the great judgment day. And people are being judged not on the basis of what God has chosen before the foundation of the world, but rather what their choosing and their actions are recorded as of taking place. Look. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. What's written in the books? What they had done. What they chose. So you're choosing the good, choosing to walk in the will of God, choosing to do the right that you know, which is in the revealed will of God, matters and there's your judgment. That's what your judgment is going to be based upon. What you do. Now, we'll further clarify that in a moment, but let's leave that there for just a second. Here's one more text, and then we'll move on to question four. James 1, 13 to 15. And and after this, we're going to poke at philosophy, and we're going to do question number four and wrap it up. James says, let no one say when he is tempted. How many of you know what it's like to be tempted? How many of you were tempted today? Yeah. How many of you were tempted to not listen to me, even in the last couple minutes, because floating distractions are all over the place, you know? Some of them are sitting right next to you. Let no one say when he is tempted, when she is tempted, I am being tempted by God. But isn't that a logical thing to say if God is sovereign and his sovereign will is always being accomplished and he does whatever he pleases? So isn't it God who is tempting me? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Don't ever use your logic because you believe that God is sovereign and in control and wills all things that come to pass. This must mean that God is tempting me to do evil. It's not how God works. God never desires you to do evil. He wants you to do good. However, as we'll see in a moment, he uses your sinful choices to accomplish his perfect will. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, her own desires. There it is. Your desires, what you want, is what tempts you. And, and let's throw Satan out of the mix. Now, he is the tempter. That's one of his names. But let, let's imagine this. 
Unless you have a mental disorder, none of you, when cooking tea, tea water on the stove, you know, you turn that fire on, and then the tea kettle is boiling up and it starts to whistle, no one in their right mind is tempted to just put their hand on that blazing top of the oven there, or if you have an electric one, that red hot surface there. No, no one's, oh, I so, I so want to do it. Oh, I so want to do it. No one, no, rather you, you step back and you put on one of those hot gloves and you're very careful. So the problem is desire, isn't it? No, no one desires to third degree burn their hands so that they have to go to the ER. No one desires that unless you have a, a problem. It's not healthy. So, so Satan's not going to tempt you to burn your hand. Rather, he's going to tempt you towards what your flesh desires, and he's going to show how it's a good thing to do, even though God says, don't. Let's take lust, for example. Let's take outburst of anger, for example. Let's take greed, for example. Let's take jealousy and envy, for example. Let's take rudeness, for example. All that Satan is going to tempt you towards, and you think that's a good thing for the moment, and your desire is to do that in the moment. And so your desire tempted you. And so here's what we should say here. Your level of fight is underneath the will. Because remember, the will is the choosing mechanism of the mind. But the will has something driving it, the desires or the motivations. What that means is that your will is actually not free in the way you think that it is. Your will is actually enslaved to your desires. You do, listen to me, what you always most want to do all the time without exception. You know, the famous R.C. Sproul example is, let, let's take this crazy example. Let's say a, a robber comes up to you and puts a gun to your face and says, give me all your money. You are severely limited in your choices at that moment. But you do have a few choices. Some of you would say, yeah, my life is worth way more than my money, and so here's all my money. And some of you think you're Captain America or the Avengers, and so you're going to try to do one of these moves on this guy. And then some of you are going to say, shoot me. Because your $20 is so valuable to you, your life is not worth $20. But, but you see, you have a choice there. And so you will choose out of those three what you, what you most want to do. You still have a choice. And you will still, in that scenario, choose what you most want. We always choose what we most want. Here's another example. You, you say, I hate, I hate getting up for, for, for work in the morning. That alarm clock starts going off at five, and there's nothing I would rather do than sleep. And so you're wrong. Really? So, what's actually happening is this. Your desire to not get fired is greater than your desire to hit the snooze button. 
And if your desire to hit the snooze button was greater than your desire to go to work, you would hit the snooze button and you would call off or just not show up. You would do that. But because you don't want to lose your job because of all your bills and because of your hobbies and and your paycheck, that desire overrides the snooze button desire. And so you actually do choose what you most want in that instance. And so the same goes for pineapple or chocolate cake, you know, s'mores or cookie dough ice cream, etc. You know, be patient with my wife or be rude to my wife. Lovingly shepherd my children or throw them across the room. Whatever you most want to do in that instance, you will do without exception. And so the will, listen, is driven by the desires, driven by motivations. Your will is actually not as free as you think it is. To have a totally free will in the way we most think about it, it would have to be without any desire and without any greater or lesser good. And that's impossible. There's always a greater or lesser good when facing a choice. Always. And your motivation and desire will always go towards what you deem in the moment to be the most good. So, for example, it's New Year's uh, week. And it's the week of diets. It's the week of gym membership explosions. Right? And so what's going to happen is you're, you're, man, you're, you're dedicated. Man, you have bought that $30 gym membership that has the tanning and the swimming pool and, and all that. And so now you're going to get up every day at 6 a.m. And you're going to go before work to the gym for two weeks, right? Because in week two, what's going to happen is you're like... Oh my gosh, like I could, I'll go tomorrow. And then the next day, you're like, man, I'm even tired, <laughs> tireder than I was yesterday. And what's going to happen is your motives in the moment, your desires, your drives are going to cause your will to make a choice. That's what's going to happen. And so because it's New Year's Eve and because the gym memberships are on sale and because, you know, Aldi has all the the fitness mats and all the water bottles and all that stuff, because that's the case, you're like, yes, I'm on it. I'm going to lose 30 pounds in a month. That's what I'm going to do. And and that drive causes you to purchase the stuff and get the gym membership and buy, you know, the new gym outfit at Target and all that stuff. And, And your drive is there for about a week, right? And then after a week, you're like, this is terrible. (laughs) I'm not doing this anymore. What happened? Well, your motives changed. And your will, which is the mind choosing, your will is a slave to your desires. All right, we have to move on. So each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, so desire is is pictured here as, as intimate, an intimate relationship. So desire has conception, sperm, egg, and then it gives birth to sin. Remember, the context is temptation. So temptation, desire, conception of the desire, and then sin is birthed. And then when sin gets a little older, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So you might, you know, I'm just going to use this example because it came to mind. You might Look at a person that's not your wife or husband with an illicit look just once, and you're like, all right, it's just once. And then that next time, it becomes a little easier. And then as you're 
you know, scrolling through Instagram, you're like, that's not that big a deal. And then choice, little choice by little choice by little choice, before you know it, you are fully engrossed in a lifestyle of lust and you can't get out and you are stuck. Why? Because now sin has, or, or, or desire has given birth to sin. And what will eventually happen is that will, if allowed to grow up, produce some kind of death in your marriage, in your body, in the respect of people you love and know. Eventually, death is coming if you give in to that. So what do we do? We fight when the desire first shows up and we delete Instagram. We don't look. We look away. We confess to people we love and trust and we fight at the desire level, friends. That's how it works. But if you play with the desire, you are giving opportunity for conception. Don't play with the desire. Because your will is not free in the way you think it is. It is subject to your desires. And when you give in to desires, it's much easier the next time and the next time and the next time to give in to that same desire again. All right. Now, what about when... People that don't have the revealed will of God, what happens when they meet God on judgment day if they're judged according to their deeds? So the question we're going to ask right now with our last couple minutes is, what is the relation between all three of those? God's revealed will in his word, God's sovereign will, which is secret, and humans freely choosing according to their greatest desire in the moment. What's the relation between all three? Well, the relation between all three can be seen in a few texts, and we're going we're gonna to finish here. Two more texts, and we're done. When Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews, and in the context, they are people who are far away from God and rejecting the true God, though he can be seen in what he has made. He has made himself known in what he has created. When Gentiles who do not have the law, the law there is the revealed will of God. Okay, so, so these Gentiles do not have the revealed will of God like you and I have, several copies of it. But by nature, they do what the law requires. Wait, how is that possible? So they, so they don't have the, the revealed will of God, yet they do the revealed will of God. Why? Because they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, no, just insert their revealed will of God. That's the law, the moral law of God. What is right, what is wrong. So these Gentiles, without having the written down will of God, actually walk out the revealed will of God. And because of that, it proves that they have the law in a sense. Look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law, God's revealed will, is written on their hearts because God has put it into every single person by way of the Imago Dei, the image of God that we're made in. While their conscience also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When's that going to happen? On that day when according to my gospel, this is Paul writing to the church at Rome, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Now, that would take a lot of unpacking, but, but I'll give you one little help here. Let's say that you are stranded somewhere in the middle of the Amazon, and you come upon this, this people group that have never seen the Bible, they've never heard of God, they've never heard of the Ten Commandments, 
And yet they have this code of morality that you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't cheat on your spouse and you shouldn't murder without maybe good cause in their law. And they have this kind of moral code, this moral law. Like where did they get that? And the answer is God has written his moral code on the heart. And the conscience will actually excuse or condemn on judgment day for these people. Okay, so, so what that's going to look like is when, when this person got offended when somebody lied to them, God's then going to say, okay, so you knew lying was wrong. Let's bring up every time you lied. Oh, you lied about 3,465 times. And every time you were lied to, you got really offended. That proves you knew it was wrong. So you did what was wrong. And right there, the conscience is going to condemn the person. Oh my, I knew what was wrong and I did it. That's what it says. Look, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse on judgment day, that's how God's going to do it. And so here's, here's what happens. God, even though he has a revealed will, he doesn't give it to everyone. Yet in one sense, he does give his will to everyone. And that's by his sovereign choosing. And we have the choice, those with the written revealed will of God or without the revealed written word of God, we have a choice to either walk in it or stiff arm it. And on the day of judgment, our conscience will condemn us or excuse us. Unless one fulfills the revealed word of God or the will of God in our place. This is the only means of escaping this judgment, friends. And so what we're going to see in this last text here, this is the last one, what we see is all three of these things taking place at the same time for our salvation. I love it. I'm going to read that as a conclusion. Acts chapter 2. Or yeah, 2, 22 to 24. This is Peter, uh, the first sermon when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. And this is kind of mid-sermon here. And look what he says. Men of Israel, there's a massive crowd gathered to hear all these 120 speaking in different languages of all the different people that have gathered there. And they're speaking the gospel. They're speaking the word of God. And so Peter comes up as the lead spokesman and gives an answer to the crowd that says, these people are drunk. That's why they're speaking in all these intelligent languages. <laughs> Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you know this, this crowd listening to him. You know this, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's the secret sovereign will. The plan of God was to deliver Jesus up. And listen, that was the most 
evil thing that could have ever happened in human history that sinful men killed God. Delivered up according to the definite plan, sovereign plan, secret plan, and foreknowledge of God. Look, you crucified. You chose. You're responsible. You crucified him. And killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's the victory verse. Death could not hold him. The chains of death were seeking to hold him in that realm, and he just just busted free, and he came out of death and defeated it. Here's what's happening here. All through the Old Testament, we have this revealed to us. Think of Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so we, we have this revealed will of God that showed this event, this coming of the Messiah, and it would be a brutal death for this Messiah. It was revealed. And the sovereign purpose of God from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the one who would crush the serpent's head, it was in place up until this moment in history 2,000 years ago. And yet, the Pharisees that hated him, the high priests that hated him, the Sadducees that hated him, the crowds that roared, crucify him, crucify him, God did not force them against their will to do anything they did, yet he used their own free choices to accomplish the salvation of all his people for all time. And they will be held accountable on judgment day for all of their actions. You see, they chose to do evil, the most evil thing ever, kill God. And yet God sovereignly willed that that would happen. And they will be Pilate and Caiaphas, the high priest, and the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, the, the councils that, that set up the, the mock trial. They will all be held accountable on judgment day for their choosing it. Yet in God's sovereign power, he planned the whole thing, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so here's what we must say about this. There is mystery here that the human mind cannot fully pull apart. But here's what we know, okay? And here's the concluding statement. God purposes that his revealed will be transgressed, thou shalt not murder, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your your God. You shall not steal. And so all, all the Ten Commandments broken in the death of Jesus. God purposes that his revealed will be transgressed by his secret will to accomplish his ultimate purposes by, here's the means, the free choices of humans and angels. Why? To give him maximum glory and be a means for his people's highest good? There's the answer to the question. Does God have two wills? Yes. How does that work? God's sovereign will often 
transgresses his revealed will. I mean, you do it all the time. Every time you sin, you transgress the revealed will of God. And yet God purposes all of those transgressions from before the foundation of the world. And amazingly, he uses all those free choices of all the people in all generations to move history towards the exact end that he wants. Only God could do this. And yet everyone is responsible for their choices. They followed their desires. They followed their own motivations. They were not forced to do anything they ultimately didn't want to do. And so they will be accountable. And yet God accomplishes his ultimate purposes for his ultimate glory and for his people's highest good through his sovereign will, transgressing his revealed will. Now, now let's, let's end here. This, this is beautiful. I've said that like six times already. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You have a choice. All through the scriptures, you are told, even commanded, to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Why would you die? Why would you choose the grave? Why would you run after what's wages is death? Sin. The reason the Son of God died brutally and the reason He lived perfectly was for you and I so that our unrighteousness, our transgressions of God's revealed will could be substituted for the full keeping of them by the Son of God. And so that on the cross, our punishment that is justly deserved could be substituted. The punishment could be absorbed by that same Son of God. And what you're asked to do as a response is to repent, which means to turn. Turn from your sin, turn from your selfishness, turn from your way of living your life, and turn to the author of life for the forgiveness that only he can give. And you will be saved. The Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And so there it is. The choice is before you tonight. Will you turn from what will ultimately kill you? What is killing you? What is destroying your relationships? What is destroying your integrity? What is destroying your character? What is destroying your relationship between God and you? Not in the ultimate sense, but in the temporary relational sense. Will you turn from that sin to him? You have a choice. And amazingly, the choice you choose will ultimately work out for God's highest purposes. Amazingly. But you can choose. And so maybe, maybe tonight, it's a new year. It's the first Sunday of the new year. Let's, uh, eating more broccoli is awesome. Going to the gym is fantastic. You know, setting new financial goals is great. But listen, they are so temporary compared to you turning away from sin and enjoying God in a more fuller and in-depth way. His presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And so maybe your highest resolution 
should be, I am going to go after God this year. And that's going to look like you turning from sin, involving others in helping you to turn from sin. And maybe you helping some others to turn from sin and turn to him for life and light and glory and beauty. So we're going to pray and we're going to take communion together as one church. And now is your opportunity to do business with God, to to pray to him, to seek him. We are going to sing hallelujah, all I have is Christ. We're going to declare with our voices in song that our only hope of salvation, our only hope of reconciliation, our only hope of being right with God and to escape his just judgment is Jesus. He will get the glory and prayerfully our hearts will be warmed to him. And the warming of our hearts causes us to want, desire, to keep his commands. Only if you want to walk in his ways, will you? And so maybe your prayer tonight needs to be, God, change my heart so that I want to walk in your ways, not walk in the way I've been walking my way. Oh God, change me at the level of motivation and desire. Change my heart. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Father, we thank you that in it there is great clarity. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to wonder what pleases you and what displeases you. Father, we also thank you that we have assurance that even our falls, even our sin, even the chaos and the seemingly uncontrolledness of the world around us is under your ultimate control. The chaos in our own lives is not without your sovereign allowing, your sovereign doing. So, Father, we thank you that we can rest in your control of all things, even our lives. And yet, Father, we want to be responsible for our own choices and our own actions. Father, I pray that you would help every person in here, myself included, to have a heart change to want, to desire, to be motivated, to walk in your ways, and to love as we have been loved, to forgive as we have been forgiven, to to not count our own needs as central, but rather consider the needs of others more important than our own, and so on and so forth. Your will commands us. Help us, God, please. May we love your law. May we love your word. May we love your ways and walk in them. Because our desires are in line with your desires. Father, would you remind us again of all that you've done for us in Jesus? Father, you are a great Savior, and you sent the great Savior. And now we celebrate him, his work, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen.